Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, filling in for Ashley Ford, and this is 112BK. Coming up, three local reporters on what we should take away from last Thursday's primary elections. Simca had said early on that the things I'm loyal to is God, my wife, and my constituents. And I thought that kind of made sense. And the thing that I like to say is, the big difference between 2014 and 2018 was 2016. People like New King's Democrats, the DSA, people who were on her side were casting Martine Delon as kind of like a replacement level Democrat. We've had the weekend to digest the results from last Thursday's state primaries. On a day that seemed to provide a lot of narratives, Governor Cuomo, who handily won his primary against Cynthia Nixon, said, nothing changed. Is he right? And what do we have to look forward to in the general election coming up in less than 50 days? To help us understand the landscape, we're joined today by Ozzy Pabra, host and political journalist for the local podcast FAQ NYC. Welcome to 112BK. Thanks for having me. And Steve Witt, founder and editor-in-chief of the website Kings County Politics. Thank you, Mackenzie. We also have freelance reporter Dave Colon. Welcome back to 112BK. Hey, how you doing? Thank you. Um, so I want to start off just with top-level headlines. What do you guys think happened on Thursday? Just a sentence maybe from each of you. We'll start with you, Dave. Uh, by D.C. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Ozzy, to you. Cuomo unhappily wins a race he didn't want to acknowledge. And Steve? Progressives win. Great. Okay. Were any of you surprised by the results? Steve? No, I would say I thought Julia Salazar probably would win. I thought Myrie would probably win. I do think that generally speaking, when it comes to progressives, I, I think Brooklyn, as we know, it's done. They talk about gentrification. I think the losers, uh, if just I know I'm going off, the losers was, were the blacks, working class blacks and uh, Hispanics. The winners were white progressives. I mean, the, you know, the bodega owners are done. Brownsville came out for Jesse Hamilton. Working class blacks came out for Jesse Hamilton. It, it was the progressive movement. It's a progressive wave in Brooklyn, and they have taken charge, and that's the way it is, and that's cool. I mean, let's hope they do well. So, Ozzy, do you have any response to that? Yeah, uh, yeah it, it, it's sort of interesting, because if you only look at the state Senate races, I think that analysis that progressives won is largely correct. If you look at the statewide races, it, it's almost the opposite, because what you had was Andrew Cuomo not only winning and winning handily, he won in such a fashion as to try to put to rest any question that he's having a challenge from his left, a, a legitimate challenge. And he had not only the ability to win his race, but apparently the coattails or enough support to bring across Kathy Hochul, who had a challenge from Brooklyn's Jamani Williams, and his preferred candidate, also from Brooklyn, Tish James, in the attorney general's race. Now, there were unique dynamics in each of those races, but the top line is, in those races, the establishment won, and the progressive insurgent challengers didn't. And there's one very basic overall issue, which is, Winning locally, you can do certain things that are very difficult to scale up. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. It's a good assessment. So you mentioned Jesse Hamilton, and I want to come mm -hmm. back to this because one of the major takeaways is that if you were an IDC member, you got it handed to you. So six out of eight IDC members lost their elections to challengers. So maybe, Dave, could you explain what the IDC was for our viewers who may not know what that is? 
Sure. If there's anybody left who uh, indeed, I will be so happy to never explain this again, maybe for the rest of my life. The Independent Democratic Conference was a group of breakaway Democrats who conferenced, caucus, whatever you want to say, they would always say, we never caucus with Republicans. They worked with Republicans to have a kind of tag team between uh, those eight and the uh, Republican conference. That meant that Democrats always went in with a huge deficit uh, every single time they reestablished, uh, you know, another state Senate would convene. So finally, because probably Donald Trump got elected, everybody all of a sudden started saying, oh, well, you know, at least we live in a blue state. We're safe. And oh, we need to look at the state Senate again. And there was just a huge wave of activism. Uh, I went to the Jessica Ramos uh, watch party, and I just remember biking through Jackson Heights, and you went right past uh, one of the center, the like uh, Jackson Heights uh, Jewish Center, where there was a hugely contentious public meeting after Jose Peralta, one of the members, joined the IDC, and he was trying to explain himself, and tons of his constituents came out, and there was yelling and screaming and uh, all sorts of stuff like that. And that was really a groundswell of where a lot of this anger came from, that people like Jesse Hamilton, Jose Peralta, Marisol Alcantara, they all kind of made a choice to join the IDC that I think was made with thinking like everybody thought, well, Donald Trump will be president. And then you make that mistake, and they kind of, they paid for it. I, for one, am very surprised that uh, Alessandro Piaggi took out Jeff Klein. I was a little surprised that John Liu won his race. But obviously, there was enough anger about that, that even in places where the governor did really well, you look at the Bronx, all Cuomo country, and yet Alessandro Piaggi won it. You look at parts of where Cuomo won in uh, Zellner Myrie's district, and Zellner managed to win, uh, even though there were parts that went really hard for the governor that you have know, been staring at maps. I'm sure we all have been staring at maps that you can see there was some ticket splitting there. Mm-hmm. And Ozzy, I yeah. see you nodding over yeah, here. Yeah, the, the argument most of the IDC members had made for the reason to be reelected was, I brought home the bacon, I brought money, I brought resources. Jesse Hamilton very vociferously argued that he brought money for schools and legal resources for his constituents that need it that are facing being pushed out. And the argument against that was we don't care about the tangible benefits. This is a test. Are you a Democrat that is working with Trump Republicans? That was largely the debate. Bacon versus Bipartisanship. So right. let's talk about someone who was not punished, which is Simka Felder. And Steve, I know that you backed him or, or you endorsed him yes, uh, before the election. Right. I'd love to ask why, and then also maybe for people who don't know who he is or why he might have inspired similar levels of rage, but seemingly didn't. You can tell us a little bit well, about him. Well, and I can only speak personally. I have a view on journalism that's different than most journalists. I don't believe in objectivity, and I don't believe in objectivity as the way. American J School teaches. So, you know, I don't want to go into a whole diatribe. But that being said, the reason I endorsed him, and I just want to go back to Hamilton real quick. If you look at the EDs, he carried every black ED. Who he didn't carry was Prospect Lefferts Garden, Park Slope, all the progressives that a lot of times the Democrats take the black constituency for granted. You know, there's blacks say to me all the time, it's like Democratic booty call. And Jesse did deliver to Brownsville. And I just hope that Zellner Myrie will, like, continue doing the campus, will continue doing some of these things that delivered 
you know, but we got into an ideological war, which brings me to Simka Felder. Simka had said early on that the things I'm loyal to is God, my wife, and my constituents. And I thought that, that kind of made sense. I kind of like that. As somebody that believes in subjective reporting, as someone that's not an ideologue, Kings County politics is, you know, ideas above ideology. His constituency is, is basically conservative. Most of their kids go to yeshivas. And I kind of like that he's independent. And, I, and let's just say for the viewers yeah. that he ran as a Democrat but caucuses with the Republicans. Yes. Yes. Right. And and I, I think what's sort of fascinating about Simka Felder and the IDC members is largely they made the deal. I got mine. I got mine for my district. I got money for the people that elected me. And what it cost them to get that, they did not think a whole lot outside of their districts. They did not really have a philosophical idea about what they wanted to see for the state. It was largely about, did I get something for my district? Did the people in my party agree or like with what I did in order to get this? And some of them had challenges immediately after forming the IDC. And the thing that I like to say is, the big difference between 2014 and 2018 was 2016. And that's Donald Trump, and that's Democrats yeah. being electrified and that wanting and wanting to get back, wanting to do something, show something, reorganize. And if the cost of it were the people who sort of made that pragmatic sort of adjustment, remember in 2010, New York state government was dysfunctional. Cuomo came in saying, I'll make it work again. He did not say I'd make it progressive. He did not say I'd make it democratic. He said I'd make it work. And people followed that kind of hint. Jeff Klein forms the IDC in 2011 in reaction to this kind of idea that we need government to function. We don't need it to be more progressive or ideological. Later in 2011, you get Occupy Wall Street. Bill de Blasio in 2013 sort of rides that forward, and you start seeing the party kind of change. So the IDC had a better rationale, perhaps, when it started. But definitely after 2016, it was much harder to argue that bringing home the bacon and sort of working across the aisle with a party associated with Trump, it was very hard to see how that was going to be a winning strategy. So let's look ahead a bit to November. We have a bunch of incumbents who have fallen to progressive challengers, but nothing matters unless the Democrats regain control of the state legislature, right? So, so Dave, right. what do you think? What do you, what's your projection? Well, there are a number of races out on Long Island. There are some races up in the Hudson Valley. You know, you've got Elaine Phillips and Carmos. Salino are both looking pretty shaky or pretty vulnerable to Democratic challengers out there, although the Democrats also have to hold on to John Brooks's seat. He's a Democrat who could potentially be facing, uh, you know, a huge Republican surge if they want to try to pick off a Democrat. State in Hudson Valley, you've got a couple people whose names escape me at the moment, uh, but the Democrats are also really looking to win those seats. Uh, one of them is a retired Republican, Jen Metzger. Jen Metzger and uh, James Skoufis are both uh, running to try to take seats up there. So if the Democrats manage to go back to Albany with, you know, let's say 34 seats instead of what they've had so far traditionally where it's been 31, and that's another IDC thing where they would say 32 is the magic number, a phrase that will be burned into my brain for the rest <laughs> of eternity, if, you know, you might never hear that again. On the other hand, Republicans could hold on to some of these seats. They could flip a Democratic seat here or there. So I think a lot of this analysis that we're doing, it's fun, love talking with everybody. It's a little incomplete until we see what happens in November. Oh, and also here in Brooklyn, uh, Andrew Gnardis against Marty Golden. People are going to work incredibly hard 
to flip that seat. It's going to be a real, real fight. So Cuomo has come out and said that he is going to do his best to get Democrats elected, to get Democrats to take back control of the Senate. Do we think that this is true, or does he sort of like having an adversarial Senate that he can blame things on? I sort of took the view that Jamani Williams was the happiest guy who lost on Thursday because he has a shot at a citywide seat and he generally was considered having run a good campaign. And Andrew Cuomo was the unhappiest guy who actually did win, in part because if some of those seats in the Mid-Hudson Valley and Long Island flip from Democrat to Republican, he may get a legislature he never wanted, which is very progressive, which has no ideological or structural opponent to it. And he may experience something not unlike Donald Trump, which is a legislature in your own party but an agenda that you may not fully embrace. Trump obviously has a lot of problems working within systems. Andrew Cuomo does not have that problem. And the question is, will people be able to push him? So I don't know how much he's going to enjoy having the kind of legislature that he might get handed to. And let's talk about Jumani Williams a little bit. Steve, you know, he went from being very well known here just in Brooklyn, obviously, to running a very competitive race and almost winning his lieutenant governor race. Um, There's been talk now that uh, should Tish James win in November, that maybe he will run for public advocate. Uh, Does he have mayoral uh, election insights? What do you think? I think I don't know whether he has that, but I think he's he's a person of integrity. I think he showed this in the race, uh, having personally covered him. Uh, You know, we don't always agree, but Jumani's a very straight up guy, and I think he would be an excellent public advocate. I mean, I'm not endorsing him, but he did show really well. Like Ozzy said, he was probably the happiest loser of the whole thing. And, you know, I think he would almost be a front runner. I have a funny feeling Shirlene McRae might jump into the race. <laughs> Everyone yeah. is. I'm running. Uh, uh, Carlos uh, Menchaca, uh, uh, Robert Carnegie, yeah, Menchaca, uh, yeah. Antonio Reynoso has been thrown around. It's the bigger question is who is not running for public advocate. And I, we I, don't I'm, there. I don't think I'm going to yeah. win, but we'll see. <laughs> May not soon. Um, we have time. <laughs> so I um, also want to talk a little bit about, about Tish James. So in 2003, she won her city council seat when she was on the Working Family Party line. This election cycle, she accepted Cuomo's endorsement. How do we think that she's going to fare as attorney general? She's, she's talked a big game about being able to stand up to Trump. Do we also think that she'll be standing up to Cuomo and corporate interests? Yeah, I think so. I think, for one, first of all, I don't think Cuomo should look past Molinaro. I think that that's, you know, there is a third-term burnout that's just natural. It happened to Koch. It happened to Mario Cuomo. It happened to Pataki. And he is facing that. And even though Trump, I mean, you know, people don't want to vote for Trump, Molinaro is coming across as as a moderate that race might be more competitive than people think. Andrew Cuomo is not going to run against Mark Molinaro. He's going to run against Donald Trump. People are going to think Molinaro's last name is Trump by the right. time Cuomo's campaign get, gets done with them. But, but I agree with you not to underestimate a general election in this kind of climate, any incumbent who's been around for as long as Cuomo has. He's right. only been in office since 2011, but it feels like longer. It feels like he's been there forever. Yeah. But, but with, with respect to Tish James, the reason why she was on the Working Families Party line, let's not forget, that was an anomaly because of what happened to James Davis and the party, the, the Brooklyn Democratic Party, for some reason, thought his brother would be a good natural successor to him. And anyone who's covered his brother knows they're not quite of the same caliber when it comes to public service profiles. Right. So therefore, with a very obvious flaw, 
she was able to capitalize on the opportunity the Working Families Party gave her. The question is, what has she done since becoming public advocate that's really brandished her as that kind of reformer that everyone assumed she is and, and was? I saw someone today on Twitter just sort of note, she really hasn't been the outspoken advocate for the public in terms of mass transit in the way that the mayor has been. And could somebody draw a connection between that and the fact that the governor is sort of in charge of mass transit and she now has the support of the governor? You could sort of like make all these kind of like, you know, you could draw these dots and connections, but it'll be easy for a Democrat from New York to take on corporate interests and Donald Trump. It'll be much harder and a much bigger test to see if she takes on friends and allies who for years have benefited from real estate money, from the kind of cozy relationship that some people developed with Andrew Cuomo. Mm -hmm. Between Williams and James, it sort of felt like Brooklyn emerged as a real power center for this election, and particularly African-American Brooklyn. Would you agree with that, Dave? What, do, what are we seeing in Brooklyn? Yeah, I mean, I think I I didn't cover the James or uh, Williams uh, races a ton, but obviously if you have two really well-known black candidates who are getting a ton of attention or getting a ton of votes, I mean, Williams got more votes than Cynthia Nixon did. And he really, you know, you're watching the election returns, and for a second you really thought, he's really about to do this, isn't he? Then you start wondering where the lieutenant governor's office is actually going to be located if he went back to Albany with that. <laughs> but they clearly, you know, I think Brooklyn's was also a national hotspot for Julius Salazar race. Uh, you couldn't get away from that. It's clear that it's a place worth paying attention to and that uh, more and more people are probably going to be coming out of the borough, you know, sooner rather than later. I think that uh, certainly Central Brooklyn has replaced Harlem as the, the black power base, because you also have Hakeem Jeffries, who's very powerful. You know, he had his hands in several races. He's also a moderate. I would say him and Letitia James are, are moderates. Like Jumani's more of a progressive. I think Letitia James and Hakeem are moderate. But yeah, I think that Brooklyn is pretty powerful in the yeah. black community. You have the mayor? Very famously, it doesn't feel like he left Brooklyn sometimes. Then you have the attorney general from Brooklyn. You have the Senate leader, Chuck Schumer. He's from Brooklyn. You can see him riding around the streets. Right. You know, And you have Jamani Williams, wherever he's going, obviously from Brooklyn. You have Hakeem Jeffries, talked about as the next speaker of the House at some point in the future, very much from Brooklyn. So you have the, the votes in Brooklyn. You have this progressive activism from Brooklyn. You have the Working Families Party, very much rooted and active here. So it's going to be fascinating to see how the local races here sort of give a hint and a preview about what's going to be coming up ahead. And Ozzy, let's stay with you because I want to talk about Julia uh -oh. Salazar. So we had some controversies, but she won. She, she came out ahead. Was anyone surprised by that? What do we attribute her win to? I was stunned at the fact that there were these controversies. I did not know that one's own biography could be so questioned and rewritten. Look, there, there is something to be said about people embellishing themselves. Anyone who's ever been on a first date or a job interview knows that you sort of deliver the best version of yourself. And sometime after the honeymoon, you sort of reveal who you really are to the person you're, you're with. And, and, and that's like a natural progression. The idea that, that Julius Salazar identified herself on more than one occasion as someone who was an immigrant and then later said, well, actually, I was born here. My parents came here. Like the basic factual elements of her biography that they were so misunderstood, purposely or otherwise, I thought was stunning. But one of the definitions of a wave election is that 
the overarching elements overwhelm idiosyncrasies. You get waves in the ocean that lifts all, all the tides. I think when you have a wave of progressives that are activated, that are working together, the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, I, I believe, when you have that kind of mobility working across the board, that kind of momentum takes over unique individual races. I think Julia Salazar had enough elements working with her. I think if that race were two weeks longer, a month longer, if that was happening perhaps at the top of a ticket by itself with more attention, it could have been different. But she presented herself very differently than what some of the facts suggest. And that's going to give, I think, a lot of people interest in following her in her first year in office, her first reelection, what's going to happen. And it's going to be a fascinating to watch. Dave, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think that what she established pretty early on as, you know, a way for her to run was that she was kind of casting and people like the New Kings Democrats and other the DSA people who were on her side were casting Martine Delon as kind of like a replacement level Democrat. And, you know, in, in another year, obviously, a different kind of uh, situation, people might just go, yeah, sure. OK, we'll pull the ballot for we'll fill in the circle for whoever. He's got a D next to his name. He can't be that bad. But this was a year uh, where the DSA knocked on a ton of doors. Uh, New Kings Democrats knocked on a ton of doors. And she really did benefit in part from the uh, first wave of press, that even if the uh, reaction to, to that was to have a lot of bad press uh, in, in return, I do think that she really benefited from the fact that a lot of national outlets wanted to write about her, which I always thought was weird that, you know, I think everybody went, oh, God, we missed Ocasio-Cortez. What are we going to do? Here's a young Latina socialist. Let's just just do it. Just do it. And, you know, I, I have some friends at national publications who got to write about her, and good for them. My friends should make money. But sometimes you did just sit back and go, this is a freshman state senator, you know, going to be like one of 63 Probably, you know, you don't know how many people are going to, like, really want to work with her or love her up there. Like, was the coverage commensurate with what she represented? And sometimes it felt, I mean, an international story where the Daily Mail shows up is, like, bonkers. With the Keith Hernandez Yes, all of that. But, but I think you make a, an excellent point about the template. People felt bad that they missed like, the Ocasio-Ocas story. What's the next version of that? Julia Salazar, I think, was presented in many respects. They have— some type of similar profile, women of color running for the first time against Democratic incumbents. And that was enough for some people to then launch and write that this is the next wave. This is round two. And I think that overlooks some of the very specific details about her own story and about Martin Delon and about that district, which has a lot of needs in terms of housing, how the neighborhood is changing and what a representative there could could do to address that. Yeah, I think, first of all, you know, I wish her luck, and I'm glad that she won. I mean, she did win, and that's fine. But I going back to something I said originally, uh, Bushwick is like the fifth most gentrified neighborhood in Brooklyn. The jobs, there's been a study, they're all going to the white people there. It's, it's just— the take away all the publicity and take away, you know, that you got this kind of press and that kind of press. The horses have left the barn. Brooklyn's changed. It's not what it was. The Hispanics lost. Salazar, when, when we're talking about commercial rent control, you know, Delon was the middle of the, you know, he was, he'd been there a long time. He was a son of a bodega owner. Salazar had a $725,000 trust fund. 
I wish her luck that progressives and Newt King's Democrats, it's their borough. Well, they have it now. And we're going to have to end there, but I want to thank you all for coming to join us. Ozzy, Steve, Dave. Thank you. Thanks. And now some news. Councilmember Justin Brandon's office has announced that starting October 1st, the Department of Sanitation is expanding its curbside electronics pickup to the southern half of Brooklyn, from Cobble Hill and Canarsie down to Coney Island. This is great news for that ubiquitous pile of accumulated tech in all our closets. They'll be collecting TVs, computers, hard drives, cable boxes, cell phones, and tablets, as well as DVD players, printers, scanners, and your dad's fax machine. Keep in mind they still won't accept ACs, appliances, or batteries. A massive seven alarm fire in the King's Plaza Shopping Center has left 18 firefighters and three civilians with various levels of smoke inhalation and heat exhaustion. The fire, which was confined to the parking structure of the shopping mall, created a huge amount of black smoke, and authorities are unsure how many cars were involved in the blaze. As of Monday afternoon, the 21 injuries were being described as non-life-threatening. Everyone had been classified as stable, and King's Plaza was closed to the public. In Bed-Stuy, at around 3.40 on Monday morning, a man tossed a lit Molotov cocktail at a barber shop. It was a close shave, but nobody was hurt. The motive for the crime isn't known yet, but even less clear is the origin of the weapon itself. The name Molotov cocktail was coined by the Finns during the Winter War in 1939. It was intended as an insult to then-Soviet Foreign Minister Vyacheslav Molotov, who signed the infamous non-aggression pact with the Nazis. As the Soviets began their bombing campaign over Finland, which their propaganda called humanitarian food deliveries, the now famous bottle firebomb was invented to attack Soviet tanks. They called it the Molotov cocktail, as if to say, here's a drink to go with the food. 112BK is hosted by Ashley Ford, except when she's off getting married. Congratulations, Ashley. So for the next couple of weeks, it will be hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is written and produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Barhi, Isabella Cantara, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. And it is edited by Mira Al-Rahim and executive produced by Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.